นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนามสามิเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่องเรื่อง
it's kind of embarrassing to think of it, but I grew up in in a place called Morrinsville, um, which is a sort of drained swamp in the centre of the North Island of New Zealand. It's actually quite beautiful, and apparently they 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 filmed the uh, the Lord of the Rings there. It's Hobbitville, actually. Those of you that've seen Lord of the Rings, it's um, a place between Morrinsville and Matamata is actually Hobbitville. It looks very nice, apparently, on the movie. Uh, it's 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 a different place when you live there. So anyway, um, so I grew up on in 16 Studham Street, Morrinsville, and when I think back, I can remember there was this Roman Catholic family who lived across the road. We must have been there for 15 years, and um, I, in all that time, I remember I was fascinated because I walked past this house every day, and they had a little little white image of the Virgin Mary in the garden, and I, I was fascinated by this. But in all those 15 years. I can remember only once ever saying to my parents, who were very devout Christians, um, as you probably know, you know, we come generations of preachers in our family, and I asked once, I said, well, what is that anyway? The reply I got was, we don't talk about that sort of thing. Uh, so when it comes to uh, rituals and symbols, um, that the Roman Catholic Church is a little more... Um, skilled at using, I understand. I'm afraid I was reared um, with a very mundane religious uh, conditioning. But my own practice of prayer these days is very much informed by, by the experience that I had in living in Thailand. And the association with the monks that I lived with there, not that they talked about it very much, but when I look back, I feel like it's something that you you pick up. And this reminds me of um, a conversation I had with a, a Christian monk who visited here some time ago. He lives a somewhat hermetic existence just north of here in the borders area. And we were having a very rewarding conversation because he was talking about people who come to his his little place that he has there, a very simple place, and guests come and stay sometimes and talk about their spiritual life. And in the course of this conversation, I was asking him, so, well, do you ever actually teach them prayer? Because as I've just said, in my own upbringing, this was something, you know, I never was taught anything about. And, I, and he was a Roman Catholic monk, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, they have something that they teach their people. And he said, oh, no, he said, prayer is not taught. He said, it's caught. It's like a disease. You, know, you, you catch it off somebody else who knows how to do it. And I, can, I, I have a feeling for what that means, having lived around um, traditional Theravadan Buddhists for five or six years as I did in Thailand, there was something there that I would call a prayerful attitude towards practice, which I feel I picked up. And I wasn't conscious of it at the time. But it was, it was a few years later when I was on retreat back in this country, uh, an intense retreat when I was having a very difficult time. And there was something within me that just wanted to speak, that just wanted to speak out. And uh, all I had was these reflections that we have, you know, the morning and evening chanting, you know, they're, they're okay, but... I don't really enjoy doing them in English, I must say, but the reflections that we have 
I do enjoy doing in English, and, and so this one that we do every evening here, through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, and you know how it goes. And so I, I started saying this. It, it felt like in this state of, of, of uh, utter despair I was at the time, I was in a solitary retreat. I put myself on solitary retreat for two months. There wasn't other than the fortnightly recitation of the rule, I wasn't going to see anybody for two months. I locked myself in this room, covered the windows with tracing paper, so I only got light and I couldn't see any people And and uh, for two months. And it, it, it served the purpose of <laughs> bringing about intensity, which I thought, of course, I could handle. Um, <laughs> I had a few things to learn. But I, 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 I did learn... I did learn something about prayer. In, um, as I recall now, it's, it's quite a few years ago, but I do remember the incident as being very important when I, I started to speak these words that I just learnt, you know, these things we rattle off uh, every day. I learned to speak them with feeling. And something within my heart was really delighted by that. I was able to say these things and mean them. May I abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from... May I be free from suffering, may all beings be free... And to say it with feeling, something in the heart was was really gladdened by that. And and I can remember it inspiring me to actually look a little further and eventually start to um, write my own. And for me, that was the beginning of a prayer life, uh, or a reconnection with a prayer life, which I, I recognized uh, with hindsight that I really missed. So, not just doing these um, verses or reflections that we have, but finding our own words for these, I have found are profoundly significant. Gestures like, for instance, offering up the candles and incense. Uh, we offer the incense and everybody lights the incense and holds it up. And I don't know what other people do, but in my own mind, I always, always offer up this prayer. I say, may the fragrance of the truth permeate all aspects of my being, activity of body, activity of speech, activity of mind. And that's a prayer. And it's said with feeling. It said was consciousness. And all I can say is that it actually does something. I don't know what it does, but it does something. And uh, I feel it's a significant something. And again, how to talk about in the context of traditional Theravadan Buddhism is, is not so straightforward. But when I think back to the language that was used when I was in Thailand, the monks used to always talk about Aditan, making Aditan, which is the Thai uh, version of the, the uh, Pali word Aditana, which means determination. Uh, interestingly, the word the Christians use in Thailand, when the Christians teach prayer, they use exactly the same word, Aditan. It's exactly the same word as the Buddhists use for actually making determination or asseverations. And whereas 
my early prayer life came from an understanding of there being some almighty authority out there that was just somehow responsible for everything. And if you kind of had a ticket, you could, you know, get this privileged relationship with this, this character and he could do what you wanted and you just had to keep saying things to him and, and so on. And yeah, that was the original idea. The Thais don't have such an idea at all. They're not talking to some almighty powerful being out there. That's not part of their conception of reality. Well, after a good few years as a Buddhist monk, I came to realize that that conception of reality also was, was rather cleaned out. And I, as on this retreat, I discovered that I was able to actually give voice. The heart was able to, to speak in a very meaningful way. And I realized the heart longs to speak. Some of you may be acquainted with your Bible and it says in the Psalms, I'm not sure which psalm it is. Perhaps Tony could tell me. Out of the depths I have called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. May thine ears consider well the voice of my complaint. Which psalm is it? 130. 130. May thine ears consider well the voice of my complaint. This longing to be heard, which the heart has most naturally, is served by the process of prayer. But coming from a theistic conditioning, that uh, obviously hasn't fulfilled us, otherwise we wouldn't take and leave of it, into a non-theistic religion, not an atheistic, but a non-theistic religion like Buddhism. I know in my own experience, when I started to pick up prayer life again, there was a real reservation, if not actual fear, on that particular retreat that I referred to earlier. I do recall, you know, as I started to rewrite my own uh, reflections and offer them up, this is oh, this is tricky. You know, I could end up becoming a theist, and you know, my <laughs> my brothers and sisters, they're right out there. You know, the Assembly of God, and kind of my youngest brother's just started his own church in New Zealand. I mean, they're totally uh, as churchy as you can get. Make me look really <laughs> worldly. I could be heading in that direction. Maybe it's in my blood. You know, and. Yeah. <laughs> And so there was a real fear, but with mindfulness practice, I was able to say, well, yeah, okay, so I'm afraid I'm going to become a theist. Well, just because I'm afraid doesn't mean to say it's going to happen. I mean, surely we, we've all seen that in, in practice now that you know, just because we're afraid something's going to happen doesn't mean to say it's going to happen. Mm. Or just because you feel guilty about something doesn't mean to say you've done anything wrong. Just because you want something doesn't mean to say you'll be happy when you get it. We've all seen how deluding apparent reality can be. And so on this occasion, on this retreat, there's a sense of, okay, I'm afraid I might become a theist any minute, but there's another level of me which really likes this, you know, getting back into giving voice to the heart's deepest longings. I don't have an idea of there being some great authority up there listening to me and, you know granting me what I want, if he's in the mood or not, accordingly. I didn't have that sense. I just, I just felt the heart wanted to speak. And there was a conflict there, but with mindfulness one can feel one's way through it little by little. And, and I, I found confidence in being able to just give voice to those heart's deep longings, true longings. I think it was around that time also, I at Chithurst, um, one evening I was leading the community and 
a church group came to the monastery, Roman Catholic um, prayer group, I think they were, large gathering, about 30 people came, and so the meditation hall was chock-a-block. And, and so I, uh, they wanted a Dhamma talk, they wanted to know what we were about, and so I, I did my best, I gave a talk. And then I said, if there were any questions, and, and one of the group put up their hand and said, well, you know, um, what, you know, what good do you do for anybody else? I mean, you don't even pray. And I said, I said, what do you mean we don't pray? I mean, I pray. And she said, well, well, how can you pray? You haven't got a God. And she was, you know, absolutely certain this wasn't possible. And I, I, Immediately what came into my mind says, well, does the sun have to have something to shine on? The sun, you know, just shines, that's its nature. And likewise, the heart just speaks, the heart wants to speak. We have deep concerns, we have deep longings, it matters to us that we don't waste our life. So if our meditation practice is just a matter of letting go of everything, everything's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, Anicca Dukkha Anatta. We pasana meditation means letting go of everything. If that's our practice, you know, you can try to let go of everything, but there's a there's a very lonely somebody in there that you haven't let go of yet. And maybe that very lonely somebody actually, you know, wants to be heard and wants to speak. So it's been my experience that if we prepare ourselves with mindfulness, non-judgmental, here and now awareness, that it is possible to find one's way into this kind of intimate dialogue with the divine principle, if I can call it that, the divine principle. For me, the divine principle is represented by the triple gem, the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And I do in my own devotional practice, I refer to it as the Lord Buddha, Lord Dhamma, Lord Sangha. Because I like the word Lord. Uh, to me the word Lord means that which rules over, means the governing, overriding, governing principle. You know, remember the, the Lord of the manor used to be, you know, that guy who, you know, basically got what he wanted, the boss. And uh, it's a word that's not used very much these days, Lord, but the House of Lords is kind of a funny business that goes on down there in London and rather quaint. But the word itself, I, I'm not involved very much with politics or with you know, British history and these tyrannical lords that used to abuse everybody. Um, so for me, the word's still got a very nice meaning. So I, I, I use it and I like it. It's got real value for me. And it translates very directly what I used to hear again in Thailand, where when, when they talk about the Buddha, they don't just say, oh, Buddha did this or Buddha did that, which is what we hear these days in, in the West. They always talk about the Lord Buddha, Prapurajal. Prajal means the Lord or God. They talk about God, it's Prajal. They talk about the Buddha, they say Prapurajal. They talk about the Dhamma, they talk about Pratamajal, Pratsangajal. It's always the Lord Buddha, Lord Dhamma. It's, it's qualifying these things with, with words that actually raise them up. You know, conditions are not all equal. As we know, our heart matters 
are more important to us than our casual concerns. If we don't get to read the newspaper one day, so you know, so what? Big deal. Uh, that's a casual concern that we like to read the newspaper or we like having coffee in the morning. We can do without gratifying our casual desires, our superficial desires, but our heart longings, actually, if they go unattended to, there are serious consequences. So as there are actually different levels of desire, uh, so there are different conditions in our life. And and to just say that everything is equal is uh, is very naive. And so I think this is something our language, uh, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but I think it's the case that we've lost a lot of these uh, the usage of these words. However, we can, in prayer, it's a personal matter and we can basically do what we like. It's a conversation with the divine principle, an intimate conversation. And in my experience, it starts off with these rather um, obvious uh, contemplations, reflections that we do, like, may I abide in well-being, or through the goodness that arises from my practice, may all beings benefit. Now we say these things, now if, if we, we can just rattle them off as I said, but if we stop and, and ask ourselves, well do I mean this? You know, do I actually mean that, you know, through this dedication of punya at the end of the day, do I mean that, okay, the effort I've made in practice today, effort and restraint of body and speech and mind and training the heart and mind to align with what we believe is true and worthy, this effort, do I understand that this effort generates a wholesome potential, which is what the Buddha said, he talked about this wholesome potential as punya, rather ineloquently translated as merit. Um, but what it literally refers to is wholesome potential. When you do any action, there's a potential. If you do a wholesome, wholesome act, there's a wholesome potential. And so there is accumulated punya as a result of our good effort today. Do I actually believe that, that I can make a dedication of this to others' well-being? Others well or am I just going through this because that's what the monks do? Now, my own case, I, as I said, I, you know, I used to just rabbit it off and say these things. But there was something that when we was always interested in what's, what's, what's the principle behind this? What's this really about? And then in the depths of despair, being encouraged uh, to look a little deeper and, and then start to say these words with feeling and say, yes, I do believe this. I actually believe in punya, as a force. I believe that there is wholesome potential. Just as in the material realm, you know, you want to start a business, you know, um, you want to start some enterprise, you've got to generate some, some capital or some potential. You've got to get the bank to back your enterprise. And Okay, that's not the business yet. You're not actually doing what you want to do and you're not actually realizing the result of the business that you want to do, what you're doing is generating potential. And without the potential, you can't do the business. That's just a fact. That's a reality in the material world. Well, 
at the risk of sounding overly materialistic, I would suggest that the same principle does hold spiritually, that if we want to have the force of insight functioning for us in a way whereby we're able to see beyond, see through, undo the inertia of our habitual conditioning, the agonizing contraction of the heart into selfishness and isolation and loneliness when I get insulted or humiliated. We all know that's a condition that ideally we should be able to see through. If I want to really be able to see through that, where does the energy come from? That's what a lot of our practice is about. It's preparation. It's, It's making the effort, generating the punya, the wholesome potential, so that it's there. And so when there's sufficient potential and then... In the moment when potential is accumulated and there's mindfulness and there's, there's, there's this quality of presence there and then there's the impact, it's the coming together of all these conditions that produces the insight. It's not just something that just happens if you're lucky. Yeah. There's a dynamic involved there. So I do believe in this law of this dynamic, this dhamma of punya. And at the end of the day, I'm quite happy to stop and think, well, whatever punya has accumulated as a result of my practice today, I want to dedicate this. And I, so I, I do. I've, I have my regular little personal prayer that I go through and I say, through the goodness of practices being generated today, may this bring benefit to my teachers. I think of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Tate and all the teachers I've lived with, Ajahn Sumato, without whom this place and this possibility wouldn't exist, and the monks that I live with, my mother, my father, and the people that I care about, the people I don't care about, Everybody who's ever lived on this hill here, who's living here now and will ever live here in the future. All directions and all time. And go through all this. And, and uh, in, the, in the offering of this, this gesture at the end of the day, there's a, there's a, a, very, a very happy sense of, of offering something meaningful. And as a last act of the day, I, I certainly encourage people to do this as a practice. The last gesture of the day, generating the wish that whatever wholesomeness has been generated, that this may be for the benefit of all beings. So, to utter, utter this with feeling for me is prayer, and and it has a I feel it has a really profound effect. And so, prayerful practice, although it's not what our Asian masters necessarily talked about, I do believe it's what they were doing. There are a number of instances I can remember when living in Thailand, I've seen gestures that really cut right through. They, they touched a very deep place within me, and I would say it's the same place that, that I would call the prayerful dimension. I remember once when I was staying at Wat Babantad, which is the monastery of Ajahmahabua, renowned for being one of the most ferocious and mighty masters of, of present uh, Theravadan Buddhist forest tradition, and I was staying at the monastery and waiting in the uh, the eating hall in the morning before we all went out on arms round together. and And Vedam Rajan Mahabua came in in the morning, and I expected that he would just probably sort of start grunting at some of the monks for not being impeccable, and you know, and then just sort of rush off and bindabad. He had a reputation for going very fast. And, but what did he do? The first thing he did, he came in and went in in front of the shrine and bowed with the most gracious prostrations that one would ever wish to see. 
And they thought, well, why is he doing that for me? He's supposed to be enlightened. I mean, what's he doing bowing to graven images, for goodness sake? Yeah. Prayerfulness was a natural disposition. And that was, I'm sure this is always the case. He, he'd grown up with that. Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Tate, and the monks, they grew up with this. This is, it's so normal, it's so close to them, they just take it for granted. Aditan, making determinations, generating these, these conscious wishes from a deep place within, is thoroughly natural. And this is, I feel, the, uh, it's like one of the nourishments of the contemplative life, the essential nourishments of the contemplative life, in my view. It's an essential element, and that many people practice Vipassana in the West without... Um, realizing a lot of joy and well-being and wholeness in their life, I feel that you know their, their, their spiritual diet is a little deficient. There's some, there's some trace elements missing there, and I would say that prayer is well, perhaps not even a trace element. It's probably a major vitamin. Uh, it's it, it's it's something that really, it really deserves consideration. I fear that many people have not looked into this very deeply and have dismissed it because, as I was saying last night, they associate it with, with a sense of a spiritual tradition which they, they, they perceive as having betrayed them. I suspect this was my own case where I, I, used to, I was brought up as a devout Christian and, and said my prayers regularly. And, but when it came to the crunch, when I was really in crisis and you know, late adolescence when everybody goes through some sort of crisis and prayer was not doing me any good at all. And so I trashed it along with my involvement with the church, ceremoniously tore up my confirmation card and said, that's it, I've had it with Jesus and prayer and finished the lot. And I didn't revisit that for very many years. I'd already been a, a Buddhist monk for many years before I actually really looked back and said, well, have I really taken leave of the Christian tradition? Was that a conscious gesture, a conscious choice of saying, this particular path doesn't work for me, and this does, or was that an adolescent reaction? It was clearly an adolescent reaction, an understandable one at the time, but I found it very fruitful, very beneficial, when I was able to go back and look at it again and say, well, what was I doing when I was praying as an adolescent? And what is this feeling that I have in the heart that wants to speak out, that longs to be heard, these deep concerns that long to be heard. What is this? And so to revisit that uh, more consciously uh, as a mature adult was, was very beneficial. And I, I would encourage others to do that also, to, despite the resistances one might feel, uh, to not dismiss it as irrelevant. Uh, I would say, it's, I would suggest it's, it's profoundly relevant. I remember an experience that I had in New Zealand probably about uh, six years ago now, maybe maybe more, maybe ten years ago now. I, um, I, had been, I was staying in Auckland and uh, visiting my parents and somebody introduced me to a monk, a Christian monk, who had worked with Mother Teresa's community. I think it was in Vietnam. I think it was Saigon. And he was a nice person to meet and I enjoyed the conversation. 
But at one stage he said to me, he said, you know, I met a lot of Vietnamese who'd been brought up as Buddhists. And when I was in, when they were in hospital, he saw he was a nurse in hospital, he said, when they were in hospital, they'd converted to Christianity, but been born and brought up as Buddhists and converted to Christianity, and they came to our Christian hospital. He says, at the point when they were just about to die, they always reverted to Buddhism. <laughs> and my initial response was, oh, right, okay, I'm on, I'm on a good wicket here. <laughs> and, um, but later on I thought, hmm, I wonder what he's really saying about me. You know, I wasn't brought up a Buddhist. And I, 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 <laughs> I had the feeling that he was kind of, you know, having a little dig at me and saying, you know, this Buddhist caper, you might think you're doing it, but you wait, you know when it comes to the crunch. So, well, anyway, I, I heard it. and But um, it was only a few days after that, I was, I was with a friend and we went hiking down the west coast of the North Island and there's um, a wonderful stretch of coastline just north of Auckland, Piha. It's, uh, it's a very wild coastline, but very beautiful. And uh, because it's wild and windy and the beaches actually there are quite dangerous and there's not a lot of uh, people on the beaches. So it was a nice place to be and be alone and I had with a friend. And so we went for a w- few days walking, camping and, and trekking along the coast there. And, and it was lovely, the weather was just gorgeous and um, the bush in New Zealand is just as good as bush can be. And, and we had a, we'd had a long day's walk and, and it was time to pitch camp and, and um, we were talking about going swimming and and, and my friend was a lifesaver, and we, you know, we joked about how dangerous the beach was, and and well, it's okay because you're a lifesaver. So you know, we're, I you know, growing up in New Zealand, I spent grew up on the well, not exactly on the beach, but spent a lot of my time on the beach, and so I felt perfectly confident. I've always been a good swimmer, and so uh, okay, long hot walk. Let's get out there. Let's get into the surf, and and um, I just went rushing out into the surf. And within a minute, I was caught in a riptide. And um, I should have known better. I can say that now. I should have known better. I mean, you could look at waves and you can see if there's a whole lot of waves and then there's an area where the waves are not breaking. You know, it's because there's uh, a hole in the sand underneath and, the, and that creates a riptide. And I just went straight into it. I, I swam straight into a riptide. And I could feel myself getting sucked out into the ocean and my legs were just being pulled out and no matter how hard I swam there was no way was I making any progress towards the shore and I could see my friend on the beach you know he was noticing me and I we'd actually joked about oh this thing when you get into trouble you raise one arm up this is what you do if you're in trouble out in there you put one arm up and so I thought oh my goodness this is it this is the time to put my one arm up and so I put my one arm up and and then I thought what am I doing I'm getting pulled out you know he's going to come out he's going to get pulled out so I pull my arm down again and but I was getting pulled out, and this was not a joke anymore. This was panic stations, and I was being just drawn, and I'd never had such an experience in my life, and it was it was terrifying. And then these these images were coming into my mind, and I could see Ajahn Sumato getting furious with me. And <laughs> after all I've done for him, <laughs> what a waste. And my parents, I could see my parents grieving and, you know, we're laughing about it now, but this was, I was scared. And I think the only thing between me and Australia is sharks. 
and I could see my you know half-eaten body being recovered and and uh, a few weeks before that I had had the good fortune to be introduced by a very dear friend in New Zealand to this uh, particular breathing technique conscious connected breathing as we called it and and um, it's a it's a breathing technique that you do in a stage of total relaxation and I don't know what happened and I don't know what the sequence of things was, but somehow or other I found myself, instead of fighting to try and get back to the shore again, something within me just just dropped it and relaxed and I started to float and do this rapid breathing and I was relaxing and something within me just said, okay, let the Buddha take over. And this breathing was just breathing away and, and there was these impulses within me to say, you've got to fight to get back to the shore. You know, you're just getting closer to Australia. And the, the sharks would come into my mind and you've got to fight. And then, and then it says, no, no, just let the Buddha take over. Trust and breathe and float. And, and, and what actually happened, I didn't see it happening at the time, but I realized later on what happened to my friend on the shore who was in a terrible state of distress. What he reported happened was that in this floating, I was being floating over these big waves, being taken further out to sea. But what happened was I was taken further out to sea, but then I drifted down the coast. And I later found out this is what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to panic. You're supposed to actually allow yourself to be taken out, swim down the coast until you're out of the riptide, and then come into shore. I didn't know that. But listen, if you ever do it, that's, that's what you do. And uh, But for me, it happened doing this floating on top of the water, just breathing away and trusting and really inhibiting the tendency to contract and try and save myself. That was the voice of Mara speaking. You've got to fight, you've got to save yourself. Trust, relax, breathe, float, trust. And I did. And it was going for quite a long time and something within me just said, you know, it's time you, you know, tried for the sure again. It wasn't a frantic gesture, it's just like, it's time to try for the shore again. And I looked up and I could see this big wave coming in. I thought, okay, whatever, I'm going to ride it. So I gave myself a push and sure enough this wave pushed me towards the shore and pummeled me and you know what it's like in big surf. You get all the air pushed out of you and I'm under them getting turned over and tumbled and pummeled and I try to stick my head up and there's another wave comes and I get down again and and then I said, oh, I can't take it anymore. And I, I, I've got to put my feet down. And is the riptide still there? I put my feet down and I can just touch the sand. And I dig my feet into the sand and I crawl ashore. And, but I, something had happened. Something marvellous had happened. My friend was in a terrible state. I mean, he, was, he was really in bad shape. He needed help. His language, <laughs> the language this guy was using was atrocious. I had to calm him down. I said, look, lie down, relax, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> so you've got to breathe. I was exhilarated, you know. For me, the Buddha had conquered Mara. The Buddha had conquered Mara in the state of trust and surrender. Yeah. I didn't have to fight to save myself. And it was a very embodied experience that a prayerful life, a whole body-mind devotion to the way of the Lord Buddha had serious consequences. This was not a speculative matter anymore. 
And whatever that nice monk had to say to me about, you know, well, you wait until you die, you'll go back to da-da-da-da. I don't know, maybe he's right, but somehow I doubt it. So I do think, in response to this question, I do think that prayer has a very profoundly important place in Theravadan Buddhism. I'm a Theravadan Buddhist monk. I have um, great respect for any Buddhist tradition. I don't know much about the others. What I do know about Theravadan Buddhist practice is that it encourages us to get to know the nature of our own minds, our own hearts, our own being, so that we are at one with our hearts' deepest longings. Our hearts' deepest longings, whatever they might be. Now, I'm sure that all of us here have deep longings that bring us here. These are not casual concerns that bring us here. They're deep longings. How to become one with those, that's the point of practice. It's in terms of what to actually do. Um, yes, as I was saying some, a wee while ago, the, these reflections that we do, these outer ritual verses or contemplations that we all do together, I think that's a place to start. But then maybe if you want to, you can try actually writing your own. Make them up as you go along with feeling. What does your heart want to say in front of the shrine that which symbolizes perfect wisdom, perfect compassion, perfect purity for us? That thing is not listening to us. That's not the point. But the symbol can configure the divine principle in our consciousness. And there's me here wanting to say something. And so... I think we can try to speak. I think it's safe. I was very touched by something I read. Again, actually, it was in that manuscript of Joseph Goldstein's where he refers to a book called Civility written by somebody called Stephen Carter. And he's quoting an interview with Mother Teresa. And in this interview, the the interviewer is asking Mother Teresa, "Say, well, you know, when you pray, what, what do you say to God? And she answers, she says, well, I don't say anything, I just listen. And then the interviewer says, well, what does God say to you? And she says, God just listens. <laughs> and then she added, and if you don't understand that, I can't explain it. And I do think that's, that's, that's the essence of it. This is not really something that we can explain. But our hearts do feel deeply. There are deep concerns that we need to attend to. For me, it's an intimate conversation with the divine principle. And the more we exercise it, the quieter it gets. So moving on to um, at least some of these other questions. Um, there's one here that is quite long, but if I can summarize it, I hope I've got it right. It's saying that being here, I've remembered what I've forgotten about being present, and I'm afraid that I'm going to forget it again when I am caught up in all the many responsibilities and challenges. How can I actually remember this presence? Well, I, I think... I think prayer is one way of doing that. I think prayer is a way of doing that. We can actually, you know, this can be a prayer. You know, one can actually say, you know, may the goodness of the practice that I've done support me in my aspirations to be present in every moment of my day, no matter what's going on, to actually give voice to it. 
I think prayer helps. Being on retreat in a situation like this where we're fortunate and supported and encouraged. Remembering other situations where we're not so supported and not so encouraged and we forget ourselves. Uh, Maybe a sense of fear comes up and even anxiety. And If we're not careful at that point, we could just believe in the fear and the anxiety and assume that it actually means that there's something terrible is really going to happen. As I said a minute ago, just because we feel afraid doesn't mean to say something terrible is going to happen. So let's not assume, because we feel afraid that we're going to forget ourselves again, that that's actually going to happen. What is happening here and now, received into our non-judgmental awareness, what is actually happening is the fear that something painful is going to happen. We can be with that. Preparing ourselves for that situation, where there will be increased responsibilities and challenges and complex things happening, Preparing ourselves for that situation now means actually recognizing the fear for what it is and seeing it as just that and not believing in it. So don't believe in the way things, these things appear to be and then just gritting your teeth and, oh, I hope I don't forget when I get into that challenging situation again. And preparing ourselves for that situation by being more fully present now. Right now, that fear of that situation is just this much. No judgment. We're allowed to feel afraid. There's nobody says we're not allowed to feel afraid. There's not even anything wrong with feeling afraid. Unless we say there's something wrong with being afraid. There's nobody judging us for feeling fear unless we judge us for feeling fear. So I would suggest that um, there's a grounds for concern. Yeah. We've experienced in the past being caught up in situations and forgetting what's precious and important to us. And when we leave here, it might happen again. But let's not just assume that it is going to happen again. Feel our feelings freely here and now without any judgment, without adding anything to them or without taking anything away from them. The feelings are just so. They're okay. So I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention.